1948, and Lyndon Johnson is trailing in the Texas Democratic primary for the Senate. His opponent is Coke Stevenson, a hugely popular former governor of Texas who beat Johnson in the initial primary by 70,000 votes. But LBJ has cut Stevenson's lead in the runoff election from 20,000 votes to just over 150. Johnson was forced to give up his House seat to run for the Senate, and at 40 years old, if he loses, it will likely be the end of his political career. Suddenly, a ballot box is discovered in Alice, Texas. Ballot box 13 contains 202 new votes for Johnson. Sure, the names are written in a different color ink than the other ballots. Ensure the names are listed in alphabetical order. Ensure the handwriting is all the same. Ensure some of the people listed as voting for Johnson couldn't remember voting. But this is America, and democracy is king. Johnson wins the Democratic nomination for the Senate by 87 votes. unnamed history podcast uh it's me your favorite host brian and your favorite co-host uh justin how you doing justin pretty good it's a nice uh sunny day in seattle i'm ready for the spring i'm ready to get my covid vaccine let's have fun (laughs) you're ready to get the the bill gates nanobots shot directly into your body yeah, I mean, whatever is in the vaccine, I'll accept it without, you know, any criticism. You know, our city council uh, made a request to Cuba for, like, help with the COVID, COVID vaccinations and to bring the Cuban vaccine. Hell and yeah. I was like, I was like, this one vaccine I have 100% confidence in, it's that Cuban one. <laughs> but of course, uh, this country sucks too much. We'll never be that lucky. <laughs> yeah, instead we have to deal with this Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Like, don't they make shampoo? Now they're doing vaccines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we decided that we got to follow up. You know, the the Truman podcast, uh, you know, multi part podcast. It was uh, such a banger that we we're like, look, we got to keep talking Democratic presidents and. When it comes to larger-than-life Democratic presidents, uh, no president is larger than Lyndon Jumbo Johnson himself. <laughs> and, you know, we got we got to do it. We got to talk Johnson. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
Some might say there's there's a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, we're <laughs> we're, ta- we're going to Taylor especially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he he's got a a, a big butt. Uh, he's got apparently, <laughs> I mean, allegedly, uh, other things are big, but uh, he's a very big personality. Uh, big lapels. Uh, big man at uh, six foot three and likes to uh, intimidate people both through, you know, physical and uh, political means. And we're going to get into a lot of that. Yeah. And so today we're going to talk about the start of Johnson's political career. And I kind of wanted to, to lead us off. I went to the Texas Monthly archives, which Texas Monthly is like uh, the the place to get the most lukewarm lib takes that you can get in the entire state of Texas. If you want to know what the, if you want to know what a Pete Buttigieg supporter in Austin thinks <laughs> about anything, uh, just go right to Texas Monthly. All right. And in 1999, they declared Lyndon Johnson the politician of the century. And I, Justin, I just thought I have, you've not seen this. This is this is new to you. And I just want to read this intro paragraph for you, which I think right. is going to really set us up nicely here. So it reads, when Lyndon Johnson was born on August 27th, 1908, a neighbor named Oda Lindig arrived on horseback four hours later, took one look at the baby and predicted that he would be governor of Texas someday. It was the underprediction of the century. How could Lindig, a simple hill country farmer and horse trader, have known how thoroughly the firstborn child of Rebecca and Sam Johnson would dominate the Texas political arena in his lifetime and beyond? Johnson continues to tower over Texas politics, not just because he was the first Texas bred president, uh, not just because of all he did to reshape America in the area of civil rights and confound America in Vietnam. But because 26 years in his grave, Johnson continues to extend the very idea of Texas into American political history, with all of our flair and our faults. More than any president since the early Virginians, Johnson took his roots with him into the White House. And uh, I can confirm Johnson is a mythical figure in the state of Texas, uh, where he is much more beloved than I think in the rest of the country. Uh, but I do like that th- this would be the lib take is that basically just, well, he's from here. <laughs> we love him. He's from here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like when the band says, how you doing San Antonio? And you're like, well, that's where we, that's where we are. That's us. <laughs> well, in this whole take where like, you know, LBJ single handedly, you know, like, uh, makes civil rights happen and makes like all these liberal reforms happen. Um, I think in, in in this podcast, we're going to demystify this a bit and, uh, kind of like illustrate that, uh, you know, LBJ isn't kind of this noble individual, you know, like, uh, seeking to necessarily like help people out. He's more of uh, a person that's uh, seeking power and uh, will kind of attain it by any means necessary and doesn't really have that many uh, political uh, beliefs, like no- nothing really that concrete besides, you know, let's let's get that power. So 
going to Johnson's, you know, early life, we've already learned that he was visited by an ancient hill country mystic uh, at his birth, you know, much as Jesus was visited by three kings. Um, but what else was going on in uh, Johnson's early life? He grew up in uh, the hill country, which is, uh, you know, 50 miles west of uh, Austin, Texas. Um, you know, back in the early 20th century, it's very uh, isolated, you know, from the rest of Texas. There might be like one road coming in and out that was fairly like treacherous and you had to like ford a bunch of rivers just to like get anywhere. Um, no, no electricity until, mm. you know, later on in the New Deal era. So, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of farming. Uh, there was a town, uh, you know, Johnson City, which was, as you might have guessed, uh, you know, helped founded by some of LBJ's uh, ancestors. But even in that town, it might have had like a little general store, you know, a couple a couple little shops, but it wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. a bustling <laughs> metropolis. Um yeah, and I mean, that would come for Texans today. This would come as a bit of a surprise because the Hill Country is uh, where your, like, boomer parents go to retire if they had a very good, lucrative career <laughs> their entire life. Um, you know, it's full of, like, antique shops and uh, tourist traps and um, places like, like Comfort and Green and Fredericksburg are these, considered these very cute enclaves uh, for essentially the wealthy elderly to retire. And at the time of like Johnson's youth, this is not the case. This is rural, rural America, uh, which is extremely poor, as you were saying, and also a level of poverty that I don't think that people today like really <laughs> have a grip on. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty fucking poor. I mean, to give an example, uh, you know, in 1968, there was a documentary shown on CBS called Hunger in America, and it heavily features San Antonio, which is not technically in the Hill Country, but it's just on the south side of the Hill Country. It would basically be the largest city near this Hill Country. And keep in mind, cities at this time in America are much richer than rural areas. But yeah. in, you know, Hunger in America, it begins with the showing an emaciated infant in, at this, you know, uh, emergency care ward at a hospital. And the narration just comes in saying, this baby is dying of starvation. He was an American. Now he's dead. And that's it begins oh there, goes downhill from that from that point. Um, it is generally considered to be so shocking that it like helped get food stamps passed and like school lunch programs passed as federal programs. Um, but we're talking pretty obscene levels of uh, poverty that Johnson wasn't necessarily in himself, but was certainly growing up right next to and around, right? Yeah. And so uh, a quote from uh, Robert Caro, who wrote, you know, a bunch of these like, you know, very long, uh, you know, tomes, like thousand page or so tomes on, uh, on LBJ, um, which will be sourcing like most of what uh, I'm going to say, although I will, you know, try and be critical of them when I can. Um, but there's an interesting quote um, about the hill country in there where Caro uh, says, you know, uh, in regards to the hill country and LBJ in his future career, he says, you know, talking to old women in the Texas hill country, 
I kept hearing uh, about LBJ. We loved him because he brought the lights. I thought mm-hmm. I knew what that meant, but I didn't. And so, you know, that that basically means that, um, you know, LBJ, like during the New Deal era, brought uh, rural, you know, electrification to the hill country. And that was a big deal because, you know, w- women in the, the hill country spent like so much time just doing like endless backbreaking labor, uh, hauling up, you know, buckets of water from deep wells, uh, spending, you know, entire days, like just canning food by hand, Mm. um, do it, doing the wash for the families, um, ironing it with these, uh, big chunks of metal that they would heat on metal stoves called sad irons that would often just like, you know, they're not like irons that we have. These are very like crude chunks of crude, flat chunks of metal, uh, that would like burn their hands oftentimes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, and they were very unwieldy. It was not good. And then meanwhile, you know, like, uh, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, were, were farmers, uh, you know, they would kind of, you know, till the land, like, you know, work, work, work the soil, uh, you know, without the benefit of any like, you know, nice electric or like gas powered, you know, things, uh, the soil in the, the hill country was uh, very thin. So, you know, it could happen where somebody would spend like so much time, you know, buying a farm, buying property, getting uh, farmland set up. And then there'd be like some heavy storm that would just wash away that thin mm. layer of soil. And then people were, were ruined in the hill country. Like, yeah, a lot, a lot of people were financially ruined. Yeah, this is like not good farmland. The hill country is literally all rocks. You know, there's like one inch of dirt and then rocks. And uh, I remember when I was in Boy Scouts as a child, we would uh, go to this camp in the hill country called Bear Creek. And the joke always at Bear Creek was, hey, you know, if you want to remember, you know, your time uh, at this camp, uh, just take a rock and take it home with you, right? Because there's fucking rocks everywhere. Um, But yeah, people forget. You know, it's probably hard to understand from our perspective, unless, of course, you lived in Texas in like mid-February this year, how important electricity is and uh, and what totally. a big deal it is to, to bring it to these rural areas. I mean, there's a reason why like the Tennessee Valley Authority and stuff like that still has this sort of resonance with people. Um, all the way back, I mean, there's this famous quote from uh, Lenin where it's something like, uh, you know, communism is Bolshevik politics plus electrification. <laughs> and he yeah. means and he means literally like extending electrical power to the countryside i mean it's it's a big deal for people because of exactly what you said i mean it people's lives were so much meaner and crueler before you can uh essentially allow electricity to do some of the grunt work for and i mean that and like lbj would still kind of like think that way even when he was president where like his idea for like uh you know, peace in various countries was just like, oh, let's do the Tennessee Valley Authority there. They'll mm-hmm. they'll like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to some degree, he's right, you know. Uh, of course, how you do it and all that, you know, yeah. the devil's in the details of all that. <laughs> but yeah, more, more biographical stuff about LBJ. So, um, you know, yeah, he grew up in the Hill Country. Um, he's the son of a state legislator, Sam Johnson, who, uh, you know, for a time, you know, while he was a legislator in, um, 
I believe the state house in Austin uh, was thought of as uh, quote unquote straight as a shingle, uh, you know, high <laughs> morals and ethics wouldn't let uh, lobbyists buy him with, uh, I believe it's uh, uh, beer, beef steaks, and broads was the term they used at the time. <laughs> the, tri- the triple D, the triple Bs. Wow, I can't wait for Guy Fieri to, to start doing that show. But, you know, as, uh, you know, ethical and, uh, you know, well, well liked as, uh, his father was, um, you know, his, his father was also, you know, very, very idealistic. So, you know, he wasn't making money off of politics, um, but he had kind of the, this grand idea to, uh, you know, buy back, uh, the the Johnson Ranch, which uh, his family had kind of historically, you know, lived around uh, near the. You might have the better pronunciation for this, but Paternalis River. You know, this is a subject of much controversy in the state of Texas. But I would uh, put in that certainly growing up, the way everybody pronounces it is Perdinales, like P-E-R-D, uh-huh. and then just sort of slur it all together, Perdinales now. Gotcha. Uh, there are some people who, uh, you know, uh, in real Texas ways like to get highfalutin and try and pronounce every part of it. And that's how you know that uh, they're from Austin. But Perdinales. Yeah. Perdinales. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, his, his dad buys back, uh, you know, the the Johnson Ranch at some point, uh, stops being a legislator, um, tries to, you know, like uh, farm the land near there, you know, like have cattle, whatnot. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't work out like it's hard. Mm-hmm. That is very hard to do in the hill country. And mm-hmm. uh, the family ends up being in, uh, you know, financial ruins. So. You know, while while at a young age, LBJ kind of revered his dad, um, you know, wanted to be a politician, you know, just like his dad, wanted to mimic his dad. Um, You know, LBJ, you know, sees his dad like, uh, you know, being being idealistic, um, you know, refusing, you know, corruption and uh, that would influence LBJ later on to become the ultimate pragmatist where, you know, his dad would do the thing that he thinks is right, where, you know, you'll, you'll see LBJ, uh, you know, not wanting to vote for something if he know it's going to lose badly, keeping his finger in the winds, saying different, completely different things to different people, depending on whether you know, they're a liberal or a conservative, um, you know, saying what people want to hear and keeping what he actually mm. wants to do pretty, pretty close to the best. Yeah. So like all of us, he's deathly afraid of becoming his father. And part of that means, uh, yeah, becoming uh, the ultimate politician in the derogatory or, you know, pejorative sense, right, of, you know, no actual fundamental values, <laughs> just just a desire for a cold desire for advancement and power, right? Yeah, uh. <laughs> and I mean the thing is, he is a lot like his dad in ways. Like uh, his dad was very good at uh, you know convincing people of things one on one. He'd like uh, put his arm around people, uh, or you know get in close and grasp their 
lapels. LBJ did the same thing. Um, you know, I uh, according to Caro, LBJ was just uh, you know a, li- a little bit more uh, forceful and uh, threatening <laughs> about those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a term that you know you'll hear called the Johnson treatment, which is you know when LBJ would get real close to you and talk to you. And the thing is, that term actually comes from his father. Like they would talk about that with his father getting the Johnson treatment, and you know, probably worth noting. LBJ is a big guy. Like, you know, he's like six, four or something like that. He's a big guy. Like, so, you know, uh, probably wasn't the most comfortable thing <laughs> to have him. Yeah. You know, two inches from your face with his arms around you, you know, giving you the little whisper treatment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially if you're some like dork in Congress, here's this mm-hmm. like giant man trying to, like, you yeah. know, get in close with you and manipulate you. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's where it's important to remember that literally everybody in Congress is a giant fucking nerd, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, so LBJ's pragmatism uh, would kind of, you know, uh, be illustrated in a lot of ways. So like, I mean, as far as dating, like uh, everybody knows that uh, LBJ would try and date the daughter of the richest person in town. He was proud of it like you would brag about it um <laughs> there there was even uh you know a yearbook quote i don't know the exact quote but uh there, there was a joke about lbj uh uh mirroring for money in the college yearbook so i mean yeah it, it was known he did it mm-hmm. yeah and also like a certain like a clear he's a clear striver right <laughs> he's he's trying to social climb as much as possible very obvious to everybody you know the the other kind of element of of pragmatism he is working on was just uh you know lbj liked to uh you know befriend old men with uh old men who are powerful whether it was Mm -hmm. you know as you'll see like fdr fdr uh speaker of the house sam rayburn uh southern senator and segregationist dick russell like LBJ would find like these old lonely men in positions of power and just like ingratiate himself to them and gain influence uh, that way. And people called him uh, a professional, professional son. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's one of those things, too, that, you know, we'll get into as we start to talk about his early career. But this is really important in the in these early uh, or these like early mid 20th century politics, right, where. You know, uh, most state politics are controlled by machines, right, that are run by these old men, right? So relationships that LBJ is able to create with people like George Parr and Ed Clark, who are these sort of legends of, like, Texas king making, are important, uh, as we'll see, because sometimes you have a close election. Yeah, definitely. And so, like, we're talking about all this, you know, pragmatism, which, you know, LBJ is all about. So what's more pragmatic if you get down to it than stealing an election if you can get away with it we should be clear it's not like uh elections in texas are in any way free or fair at this time or uh today um but yes uh lbj definitely not yeah. afraid to get in the muck with everybody else to be sure <laughs> so in in college right he develops this sort of reputation too is the sort of which i think speaks to his striving kind of nature is this sort of like teller of tales right yeah 
I believe they call him old bull for bullshitter. Classic fabricator, right? So, you know, along, like so many people, along with sort of his desperate social climbing is, and I think this is important to LBJ's character, a desperate need to create his own narrative around himself, right? His own mythology around himself um, to show that he is, in fact, an important man. Yeah, I don't remember all the details of, uh, you know, his his collegiate social climbing. I know there was like a, a social club he started just to compete with the other social club and it's like nobody really cared about it but lbj kind of uh you know made it a you know competitive you know internal politics competition and pissed everybody off and then uh you know when when he gets to be a, a congressional staffer you know when he's in his 20s later on um there's this thing called the little congress where you know, it's basically like a social club of staffers, like a bunch of nerds that have, you know, elections for kind of informal like social positions. And so LBJ is tries to basically gain influence there. And he ends up uh, stuffing the ballot box for the little Congress with illegal ballots and even made sure ballots were miscounted in addition to stuffing uh, the ballot box for that stupid election. And uh, yeah, foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, the man's got a style. All right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it just sort of fascinates too, because I, I assume all these like staffers that are going to Little Congress, as big a nerds as they are, are probably still not taking this super seriously. But uh, this shows why LBJ is the cutthroat psycho that's going to, you know, surpass all of them and that he takes everything seriously. <laughs> There's no yeah. reason for Johnson. <laughs> So uh, a later president of the little Congress would say, according to Caro, my God, who would cheat to win the presidency of something like the little Congress, you know, because it is so disorganized and insignificant. Yeah. yeah you know, uh, king of the smallest hill, you know, to sort of round out, I think, maybe the sort of exploration of uh, Johnson's, you know, personal life and a weird psyche. He, you know, ends up marrying Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, yes, that is who Hank's dog is named after on King of the Hill. <laughs> Sorry, Lady Bird. I know you didn't mean to uh, have relations with that dog, but I got to tie you up anyway, if only to protect your virtue and good name. You know, who, again, in the in Texas lore is sort of famed, uh, you know, is sort of remembered as the, the perfect first lady and all this, you know, bullshit. But... The, the true psychopath in Johnson comes out because even this is like a purely transactional relationship, right? Yeah, I mean, Lady Bird definitely like, uh, you know, comes from money. Um, you know, LBJ treats her very poorly, uh, but, you know, she does a lot of work for him. Uh, she brings him uh, coffee in bed every morning, shines his shoes, fills his... <laughs> Fills his, no, this is all real. Fills his pen with ink, like does everything for him, but like wipes his butt. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, he would make sure that like all their, you know, mutual friends at parties like knew he was doing it. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I get Ladybird to, you know, shine my shoes. You know, don't don't worry about that. You know, like things like that. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I think this shows to his kind of like relationships with people. You know, I mean, he's. A, a true social climber in every sense. And I, and it is important to note that, I mean, he's not a rich guy or anything like that, right? So he is, uh, as Drake would say, starting from the bottom, <laughs> you know. But, uh, man, the uh, psycho uh, instincts it takes, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, there there's more on Lady Bird we could get into later, but... Um... Yeah, I mean it's is 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 pretty it's a pretty pretty transactional relationship. Uh Ladybird puts up with a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll leave it at that for the moment. So Johnson eventually works his way into the house, right? Into the yeah. US House of Representatives, right? Yeah, he wins in a special election at only age, you know, twenty eight or 29 um so very young um this was also during the new deal era so he's pretty much like running on uh you know fdr's uh you know reputation the new deal like i'm with roosevelt um and at the time in uh texas that works pretty well yeah and you know people uh forget that the Democratic coalition at that time includes the entire South, right? And, you know, that's going to, let's say, throw some future wrenches into some New Deal legislation. But at the same time, you know, in an area as poor as, as, poor as the South, as we hinted at earlier, things like rural electrification, which is a big part of the New Deal, extremely popular, as well as, uh, you know, agricultural subsidies and things like that. Um, and so Johnson gets in the house and very quickly, you know, he, you know, gets this, uh, we'll say patron <laughs> from the state of Texas yeah, and uh, Brown and Root. So what, what's the deal with that? You know, Brown and Root is uh, in, initially kind of more of a big, like, uh, you know, development company. So, LBJ kind of pushes through, you know, uh, development like, uh, you know, th- this big dam in Texas. I think actually maybe more than one dam, um, you know, big projects like that. And then in return, Brown and Root would kind of uh, bankroll his campaign, you know, both, you know, unofficially and officially. Um Brown and Root was also connected to, you know, like the rise of, uh, you know, oil in, in Texas. Mm. So we th- we think of this, this this like you know this modern idea of the the Texas oil men in you know Texas politics. Um, you know, during this New Deal era, this is a time where kind of like you know Western capital, you know, Western you know like oil interests were kind of just like. Uh, finding their footing in politics and Brown and Root kind of found, found their guy with LBJ. Yeah. And, you know, like you're saying, I mean, Brown and Root, it's main thing is they sort of 
organize or run these sort of large development projects. Uh, you can see some of their work in Iraq currently. Got a lot of yeah. contracts in Iraq in 2003. But, um, you know, the per perfectly situated to benefit from government largesse. And essentially, Johnson is their guy, right? I mean, he's flying around in their private plane <laughs> when he wants yeah. to come back to Texas. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And again, not to excuse anything that Johnson is doing or say any of this is good, as much as to say, uh, you know, up until like the, I think he finally died in office in like the late 80s. But, uh, oh, what was his name? Scoop Jackson in mm -hmm. Washington used to people on the Senate floor in like the 1980s would refer to Scoop Jackson as the senator from Boeing, <laughs> like address him as the senator from Boeing, right? You yeah. know, um, it is uh, in a capitalist society where uh, there's an unequal distribution of wealth <laughs> and there is something to be gained from, uh, you know, controlling the political system. Of course, it is very simple for uh, companies like of this size to just essentially have their own representatives in Congress. And Linda Johnson is one of these guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in modern times, I have my own version of that with uh, Adam Smith and my own district uh, funded by a lot of defense companies. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing with, with Brown and Root 2 that you touched on is that you know, it became a subsidiary you know, later on of... Uh, you know, Halliburton. And so there's all these connections with uh, Dick Cheney, the first mm -hmm. Gulf War, the Iraq War, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, it's it's not good. <laughs> but yeah. um, they uh, definitely become a supreme villain of the aughts. <laughs> One that I remember railing about very much uh, against uh, uh, during college and like anti-war protests and stuff. Yeah. And so, like, some people might ask, like, why why is Brown and Root, like, you know, bankrolling um, a new dealer? Well, the the main reason was is because, you know, um, while uh, I think it's uh, Her Herman Brown was one of the main guys, uh, while, while they were, like, very, you know, reactionary, uh, you know, racist, like, white supremacists, they kind of like knew which way the winds were blowing. And they also like knew LBJ pretty well. They knew he just cared about uh, power. And, uh, you know, he could vote for some New Deal legislation. His votes would be, you know, not very consequential to them passing. And then meanwhile, like he would push all the stuff uh, they wanted through and make them a bunch of money. Yeah. And I mean, this was sort of the the New Deal coalition at the time, right? So certainly there are huge aspects of the New Deal that the business community actively and openly hates, right? And rails against and things like that. Uh, and is going to actively try and, um, you know, kill. But the New Deal is able to bring in enough of American capital, right? To give them enough of the share of the spoils that they sort of split the vote of capital, right? While uniting the vote of labor, right? And it's how something like the New Deal can happen in a country like America. Uh, at the same time, I think it gives some hints as to why it's going to fall apart, <laughs> right? Ultimately, in the end. Yeah. But but it uh, 
but yeah so i mean big you know companies like brown and root for them the new deal is the windfall of all windfalls right it's the it's the jackpot of all jackpots and all they need is a guy to direct the contracts their direction you know yeah because i mean yeah i mean it's like a lot of like public power deals but they're still hiring uh you know some private companies who want to make some money um the the other thing is that um you know, like this, this Brown and Root relationship does not just help LBJ win uh, elections. Um, he also became a very like uh, relied upon fundraiser for the D Triple C, the Democratic mm-hmm. Congressional Campaign Committee. I think that might be it. Yeah. Uh, so, like through Brown and Root, through other people he knows, like he raises a lot of money for people. Democrats in Congress, and that gives him power over them for a time. Yeah, the DCCC is the main like fundraising arm of the Democratic Party, right? So this is really how you actually gain power within these sort of party structures, is you take over these little internal bits, right, that uh, control the flow of money. And so when you ask questions like, wow, it's weird that everybody in the Democratic Party uh, seems to be completely beholden to like the Clintons, despite the fact that they can't win elections and everybody like the country at large fucking hates them. And one of them is like a known sex pest and all this kind of shit. Yeah. Like what, you know, despite all their liabilities, why is there so much loyalty? And, you know, from the, you know, coverage of the 2016 election, like, you know, books like shattered and stuff like that. What came to be very clear is the Clintons basically completely with an iron fist controlled the DCCC. So if you wanted, I don't know, any amount of money to run your campaign, uh, you better go kiss the ring, right? And uh, so Johnson is at an early, you know, stage of his life realizing where the power really comes from (laughs) in the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, at a, at a pretty young age, um, you know, I mean, people could tell he was he was definitely a climber. Um, you know, Brown and Root uh, basically offered to, you know, uh, sell LBJ like some oil interests, you know, while he was in Congress, you know, very cheaply, which would basically make make him rich. But uh, oh, yeah, LBJ, yeah, give him a taste, right? You know, yeah, give him a taste. <laughs> uh, but LBJ actually turns it down because he thinks it would kill him politically. Well, you know, people in Texas wouldn't care about, you know, their Mm -hmm. (laughs) congressman having oil interests, but people nationally Mm -hmm. would. So, like, this is a sign that, like, even back then at this early age, uh, he was thinking about the, the presidency. Yeah. And again, a little hard from our perspective today to understand since, you know, uh, today you essentially become president so you can get a Netflix deal afterwards. But, um, you know, at the time there was such a thing as uh, wanting the power just for power's sake as opposed to the uh, huge payday (laughs) that you get immediately afterwards. And yeah, I mean, Johnson is showing very clear that, yeah, he has national ambitions from this very young age. And, you know, his... His goal is some sort of national office, probably the president, right? And I think he sort of shows this this uh, striver sort of sense. I mean, he gets elected to the House in 37. 
And then in 1941, he's running for the Senate, right? Yep. So, yeah, I mean, he runs for Senate um, at age 32 uh, in Mm -hmm. that special election. Um, And so, you know, we've talked about LBJ being the the master stealer of these, you know, crappy elections that nobody cares about. Well, in, uh, you know, in this 1941 race, he's going up against an opponent, uh, Lee Pappy O'Daniel, who, <laughs> who actually steals an election from him. Pappy O'Daniel. I know everybody's hearing that and thinking this must be a very normal guy with very, <laughs> with very normal instincts and stuff about him. Uh, maybe give us a, a little detail on Pappy O'Daniel. <laughs> yeah, so I know he he started out as kind of like uh, you know this this kind of like country western singer. Uh, he's in a group called the Light Crust Doughboys. Yeah, and this is a big deal because you know Pappy O'Daniel puts together the Light Crust Doughboys, and uh, this is legend in Texas because. There's a young fiddle player in it named Bob Wills. And eventually, Pappy's going to get pissed at Wills and fire him. And Bob Wills is going to form uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, which is considered uh, the uh, penultimate, or like, I guess not penultimate, the Texas country band, right? Uh, a huge deal in country music circles and the stuff of legend, right? Uh, cementing, weirdly, uh, future governor of texas and future senator from texas papio daniels uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> sort of cementing his star in the uh history and legend of, of country music wow i didn't yeah i didn't know all that um but uh yeah i mean he becomes kind of a, a radio you know personality i mean the radio mm-hmm. is a pretty new thing back then he's a radio star uh he's got this band on the show playing country music uh, he's promoting his own brand of uh, flour, you know, for making bread called Hillbilly Flour. Its slogan is Pass the Biscuits Pappy. Um, <laughs> and so as a politician, he's, he's, kind, he's kind of populist, like he's popular mm-hmm. with country folk. But, uh, you know, he's also pretty, pretty in with the uh, Texas business community, like pretty conservative uh, economically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, generally criticized today as being a front for the oil men. Uh, but of course, you know, so is Johnson. So I, that's yeah. a choice in Texas at this point. Uh, for those that feel like this Papio Daniel story has like a ring of familiarity to it, uh, literally the character in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the uh, guy who's running for governor or whatever, is like 100% with almost no exaggeration based off of Papio Daniel. Like, it, that's him. I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. You know, they yeah. just transported him to another state and gave him a slightly different name. But this essentially is Papio Daniel. And he is this considered this sort of... Uh, populist character in texas politics again doing a a sort of light survey of texas monthly essentially any right-wing character in texas politics that you don't like your first step is you compare him to papio daniel right so you know texas monthly compared um 
Dan Patrick, who was then a senator and is now our awful lieutenant governor, uh, you know, says, uh, quote, he's a pathological liar. Dan Patrick is a composite of Huey Long, Papi O'Daniel and Elmer Gantry. Right. Uh, talking about uh, Rick Perry, you know, uh, he's not a governor in the style of John Connolly or even George W. Bush. Instead, he's like Papi O'Daniel. Right. So this is like a very common thing, even to this day of uh, if you want to tar somebody as a sort of empty headed right wing populist, uh, you throw Papio Daniel out as the as the guy, right? Um, and you know, I mean, there's certainly some truth to that. I mean, the guy is essentially a charlatan, <laughs> um, yeah, and a buffoon, a sort of buffoonish character. Uh, you know, he has some slightly like Trump esque, uh, you know, qualities, but really is he is a a cartoonish spinoff of Andrew Jackson, right? All the way down to when Papio Daniel gets elected governor, which is in like 36 or 37, mm-hmm. he throws a huge uh, like inaugural party. Like he has his swearing in at the University of Texas football stadium so that he can have 60,000 people there for the swearing in. And then he digs pits in the Texas governor's in the front yard of the Texas governor's mansion. He digs all these huge fire pits and they end up cooking, according to legend, like 20,000 pounds of meat and just have free beer just everywhere. (laughs) And and I think even sets up large tents so that people could just pass out like in Austin. And so they have this insane, essentially like rager (laughs) in the middle of Austin to, uh, you know, uh, mark his inauguration which is you know very similar to andrew jackson's inauguration in dc where they essentially uh animal housed the white house um but you know so he's this this sort of like uh, a copy of a copy that gets sillier with every iteration of andrew jackson in a way too yeah definitely and uh you know while he was like you know pretty pretty conservative um there there were elements of uh you know capital who are like you know this guy is mismanaging the state Mm -hmm. like uh, he's not doing a good job and so people were supporting uh his senate run just so he would stop being governor and ruining all their plans (laughs) yeah i mean again can't be expressed enough he is a buffoonish character right and uh people people noticed um yeah, and the funny part about this is the uh, the senator. So basically, there's the senator named John Moore Shepard, right, who dies in 1941 while in office, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to have a special election, but the special election can't be until basically the fall. So, you know, they need to appoint somebody to hold the Senate seat, right, until then. And as governor, Papio Daniels in charge of appointing the person. Well, of course, at this point, Pappy wants to be the senator, right? And apparently in his head, he works out the logic that he can't appoint himself. Um, <laughs> that would uh, be bad or maybe even illegal. Who knows? Um, but he also wants the seat, right? So he decides, well, I'm just going to appoint somebody uh, who isn't going to run, right? Because it would be, you know an extreme advantage to be appointed the, you know, temporary seat holder and then essentially run on that incumbency. Like, Hey, let's keep a good thing going. Right. You know? Yeah. So 
Pappy scours Texas of who who is the feeblest candidate that he could plausibly appoint to this position. And he settles on this guy, Andrew Jackson Houston. All right. And so <laughs> Andrew Jackson Houston is the last living heir of or last living progeny of Sam Houston, who to give you an idea of how old this guy must be. Sam Houston is the hero of the Texas War for Independence, which is fought in 1836. All right. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, this motherfucker is that guy's son. And um, I believe I think I saw that he's like 87, 88 years old, something like that. When he gets put into the Senate seat, called out of retirement. And Andrew Jackson Houston himself is this completely failed politician who tried to run as like on the racist Republican ticket of like, hey, I'm a Republican, but I'm also extremely racist, which was a big deal in like 1880, right? Uh, when yeah. Republicans were still seen as the fighters of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, but anyways, he takes this old fucking mummy puts him on a train and just fires them off to Washington, D.C. in the middle of the summer, right? Hottest time of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently the train ride is such a fucking disaster that uh, all of a sudden, you know, Houston gets like falls extremely ill. So I think he goes to exactly one meeting in the Senate when he gets to D.C. and then is immediately hospitalized. Oh, my and God. Dies like three weeks later. Oh, my God. So, Pappy and Daniel, so he can get the Senate seat, literally finds this uh, living, uh, you know, sort of, like, last living relative of, like, the founder of Texas and essentially kills him. Like, murders him. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. Very funny. Um, So, this is the election we're talking about, right? So, you know, this is the special election in 1941. Uh, and it's, it's you know, as Texas politics works, there will, of course, be an election, a general election between a Republican and a Democrat. Uh, that election is not a real election. The Democrat will win. And so the only actual election is the Democratic primary. That's the only thing that anybody cares about or is paying attention to. And in the primary, our two guys are Papio Daniel, who, you know, just got elected governor and is a big name. And of course, everybody knows. And uh, Lyndon Johnson, who is a representative from a sparsely populated area of Texas and is not particularly well known. So how does it go? So they're, they're both campaigning pretty hard. You know, LBJ's got, you know, brown and root money. Um, Papio Daniel has uh, money from the business community as well. Papio Daniel is kind of like touring around Texas with, uh, you know, a, a country band in tow and like all his campaign <laughs> events are like a big party. Um, so in spite of all LBJ's, you know, money from Brown and Root, like it's, it's a pretty close race. Um, in Texas politics, I mean, really, okay. In all politics, you know, like uh, we, yeah, democracy is, is pretty, pretty corrupt. I mean, we all know that. Um in particular, there's kind of this let there are these kind of democratic, uh, you know, like norms where uh, in Texas, um, you know, people cheat a little bit, but there's like some, you know, acceptable, 
you know, levels of uh, cheating. Um, and so like one, one kind of common thing that happens is, you know, if there's a close election, um, you know, uh, if you're a candidate, your camp wants to wait as long as possible uh, to report results from, uh, you know, counties that your, you know, team controls, because if you, if your opponent reports first, you report last, well, you can have your people, you know, your precinct officers, uh, you know, your henchmen, you know, whatever, uh, you can have them uh, fudge the numbers a little bit and increase your counts. Mm-hmm. Um so LBJ makes a little bit of a mistake here where, you know, he's up on Papio Daniel by, I don't know, like something like a few thousand votes. He thinks he has uh, this primary one and he just tells us people, hey, let's just report our results. Uh, meanwhile, Papio Daniel's people are waiting. So LBJ reports first. Papio Daniel knows the numbers that he has to beat. Uh, He has his people go to work and then he miraculously wins the (laughs) election. (laughs) Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, Johnson's, you know, uh, a lot of fake votes in Johnson's camp too. Yeah. But there is a strategy here and Johnson fucks up the strategy, which is you can't be the first person to blink, right? You got to wait on posting your results, you know? And, uh, and he he shoots his load a little too early, and uh, Pappy comes in and uh, and steals it right. And even FDR would give LBJ shit about this. Or FDR is like, oh yeah, New York, we know how to deal with this. We we don't we hold on to our results until the very end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely forced to show it. <laughs> so Johnson, you know. He loses this Senate election, but because it's a special election, he's allowed to keep his seat in the House, right? He wasn't forced to, uh, you know, uh, resign from the House to run. Um, But this is a blow, right? I mean, this guy, his his career so far has been on the rise, but losing the Senate election, not good. Yeah, I mean, he had FDR's, you know, endorsement. He has all this money behind him. He's like this Mm -hmm. wonder kind of you know, age 32. And uh, yeah, this is a big uh, blemish on his record. Yeah. And so luckily this uh, little thing called World War II happens and Johnson decides, well, maybe I can, uh, I don't know, improve my political chances or at least stay alive by uh, getting in the war. Right. This is, this is the hot new thing. This has always been the thing for American politicians, right? That are strivers, right? I mean, Teddy Roosevelt literally just invents a fucking military unit so he can go fight in the Spanish American War, a war that he helps cause, right? So that he could go fight in it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But this is a pretty common thing, uh, you know. I not anymore, but you know, or I guess with Pete Buttigieg, I guess still fairly common, but. He goes, he joins the military so that he can, you know, get that war service on the old record. And uh, what what does he end up doing in the military? So, um, you know, I mean, first off, he's kind of uh, still thinking about, you know, a Senate run in 1942, even after losing the special election. 
just because mm. it's so close. So like, you know, in when he makes appearances, you know, he's promising people that, you know, if war comes, I'm going to enlist immediately. You know, <laughs> I'm going to defend my country. Oh, this um, big mouth got him into it. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, like people that know him in the hill country, like know that he's like a coward who, despite being like 6'3", and over like 200 pounds or whatever, uh, he cannot fight and does not want any part of a fight. He's the guy who thinks he's, you know, going to be president or whatever. And he can't be president if you're dead, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, because like LBJ is kind of well connected to FDR, uh, he goes to the undersecretary of the Navy, asks for an appointment. And uh, the guy's basically like, how do you want these orders to read so lbj is drafted as an officer at first inspecting shipyards on uh the west coast is that the west coast of uh japan or oh no we're still in america okay yeah we're still in the u.s yeah he's not he's not going overseas uh he's going to uh san francisco at first um but uh you know lbj you know, is not the best at deferring to, you know, military officers. You know, he wants to give orders, not take <laughs> them. So he gets in a little bit of a kerfuffle with certain admirals and captains over there in SF. Um, so what he does next is he arranges to be, you know, relieved of his office work and do a tour of, uh, you know, training programs at other Western shipyards all along you know, the scenic West Coast. And with him, uh, he takes uh, his buddy, uh, John Connolly. Uh, he, you might be familiar with that name from other uh, political events. Yeah, yeah, John Connolly, a name that's going to come up later. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. But, um, so yeah, so when he's doing this, like, you know, tour of bases on the West Coast, this is literally just a drinking. This is just binge drinking, right? <laughs> yeah, they're partying. They're having fun. They're traveling by train. They're drinking beers on the train. They stop off in Los Angeles, you know, go to the beach, uh, party with movie stars, eat at the Paramount, you know, cafeteria. Um, LBJ even arranges a photo shoot with a Hollywood photographer to get some uh, glamour shots to use later on. <laughs> Oh my God. So, and you know, I think when you first mentioned this story to me, I was sort of laughing because LBJ, uh, of course went, or of course LBJ went to Southwest Texas, uh, college now called Texas state university for uh, Mm -hmm. hilarious reasons. They had to rebrand, but, um, it's essentially was like the big teachers college in Texas. And one thing it's infamous for is drinking. Like everybody in Texas knows, like that's the place you go if you want to uh, die of like cirrhosis of the liver at 25. Um, literally had to change its name in like the 2000s because so many students were dying from drinking related, <laughs> like uh, drinking related shenanigans, essentially. Uh, they had to completely change the name of a college, which was the last time you saw a college completely change its name. <laughs> you know? um, so. LBJ, I mean, this is a, another sort of facet, I think, of his personality is that he he is not necessarily this just completely straight-laced uh, 
you know, roller backpack psychopath. He has there's a little bit of there's a little bit of animal inside LBJ as well. Yeah. And I mean, part of this was just like a, a little bit of like, you know, despair about his, mm-hmm. you know, political future and like, you know, not not being sure if he's going to be able to advance much after, you know, losing that Senate race. Um, uh, part of it is like, you know, he wants he wants the political benefit of being in the military, but he doesn't want to actually like fight. Um yeah. Yeah, nothing about being in the military appeals to him outside of the just you know the opportunity to put it on a resume. The other thing that that's interesting here is you know LBJ um, cheated on Lady Bird a lot, um, but yeah. one one of one of his mistresses um, was named uh, Alice Glass, and um, you know her husband is very rich. Um, and uh, Alice Glass, you know, LBJ's mistress, comes to visit him on the West Coast. And her husband, uh, you know, pays pays for the, the, the hotels <laughs> while this is happening. And then while at the same time, you know, LBJ is absent from his uh, congressional office, you know, Lady Bird is running his congressional office, doing all the constituent services uh, you know, I yeah, I don't know. I I feel so terrible for her at the spouses of both, yeah. uh, you know, LBJ and uh, Alice Glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, the I, I think it's like fairly well known that LBJ at this point is like a legendary philanderer. But you know, just to sort of drive it home, one of his many beefs with the Kennedy brothers was this uh, depiction of John F. Kennedy as a ladies' man. And LBJ used to complain to friends that, you know, uh, all this talk about Kennedy and LBJ, had he would say, like, I've fucked more women like Kennedy ever he could dream, like, more than he could dream of, or something like that, right? You know, was yeah. apparently extremely bitter that his sexual prowess was not revered at the same level as, I guess, Kennedy's. Um just another charming aspect of the man's personality. <laughs> but, as much as he tried to, you know, dispel that, you know, he wasn't totally able to. So he's engaged in these sort of shenanigans on the West Coast. But then, uh, you know, I, I think he's starting to get the vibe that just getting drunk in, you know, uh, Hollywood with starlets is not going to be the star on his military career, right, on his resume that he that he needs basically people start uh calling him out so like you know first <laughs> call out know. culture when will it stop right <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know uh you know he he okay well you could say people tried to hold him accountable you know another <laughs> another uh phrase you hear a lot but um you know he had promised to you know, if uh, a war was declared, like he would see action, you know, Pearl Harbor had happened and he's kind of just bumbling around uh, the West Coast. So eventually, um, you know, Pappy O'Daniel's allies, uh, you know, attempt to, you know, shine a light on what LBJ is actually doing on the West Coast, where like all these military officers like haven't heard of him or like don't know what he's doing and he hasn't checked in. 
so papers, you know, connected to O'Daniels were, you know, reporting on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, th- this kind of eventually gets back to, uh, you know, LBJ, um, you know, who's still kind of thinking of, of running for Senate, but, you know, his, his advisors are kind of warning him against it, especially if, you know, you run for Senate uh, and, you know, leave leave duty uh, after saying you would be in the war, like, you know, that would not be good for you politically. So he gets sent to, he's, he's got to go to a front, right? Uh, you know, the corner of like, uh, was it West and Vine or whatever? It's not considered a front, right? So he's got to, he's got to get himself to, uh, he's got to get his ass into the Pacific theater, right? So uh, what happens when he, when he finally decides to go overseas? Yeah, so I mean, he basically goes to the White House with Connolly and asks to speak to the manager. Uh, you know, he meets with FDR, says he wants to be in, uh, you know, the the danger zone. <laughs> but, uh, he does he doesn't really want to fight. So, um, you know, FDR puts him with, uh, you know, a survey team that's going to report on uh the south pacific you know uh you know near near australia you know uh papua new guinea Mm -hmm. um and so uh you know lbj uh leaves the country um he's unsure of what to do whether you know he's gonna run for congress or senate um he asks his crony and ally um former state senator wirtz who we'll talk about later to uh, make the decision of what seat to run for him. <laughs> um, and Wirtz just says, okay, you're running for Congress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, stay in the house, motherfucker. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> calm down. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to win. And so while he's in, uh, you know, in the Pacific Theater, right, he, he does have a, a brush with death, right? You know, he he lands in uh, Australia um, and then eventually, you know, uh, at this time, you know, Japan had captured, uh, you know, a bunch of islands in the South Pacific. The U.S. had definitely lost uh, a few battles there. And so LBJ, uh, you know, gets put on a plane um, on a bombing mission on uh, Leh, you know, Papua New Guinea, where the Japanese had a base. Mm-hmm. Um, even like officers, you know, uh, in 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 the Air Force were kind of like, you know, LBJ, you're you're in the Navy. This is an Air Force mission. Like, why are you here? Like, what's the deal? What purpose does this serve? But yeah. uh, you know, LBJ is like, no, put I, I want to go on this plane and just uh be an observer. Uh and uh, hopefully it doesn't get shot down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I need to get on this one. You know what is so funny is uh I think it was Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Hillary Clinton had a very similar story to this. Where she talked oh, yeah. about being on a plane like over Bosnia or something. Yeah, and, like, and she's like, and we got the shot. Sniper at. fire. Yeah, and people are like, that's not like other people that are on the plane. Like, that's <laughs> clearly not true. But yeah. yeah, it makes me wonder if it was like a similar sort of like I got to get something on the on the old resume there. Um, 
so yeah so johnson he gets on this he decides i gotta get on this plane right he gets on one plane but unfortunately and we've all been there yeah you're right about to get on a road trip right you get all the car loaded up you get in the car you're ready to go gotta take a piss yeah he has to take a leak he gets off his original i think the plane is called a b26 and so he has to board a different one last minute. And, uh, you know, the the interesting thing is the original plane that he got off of because he had to take a piss uh, got shot down in this bombing mission. Jumbo will never lead you astray. Yeah. No, yeah. His uh, his uh, his instincts saved him there. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, the you know, he. He's he's on this uh, bombing mission, uh, you know. His his plane, you know, re- returns safely. Um, eventually, uh, you know, he's given a silver star by the military from you know a uh, uh, famous general uh, MacArthur, who you know at first kind of uh, questions, you know, why <laughs> LBJ would get uh, a silver star mm-hmm. because, you know, they're only the observers on the plane got silver stars. There were people <laughs> aboard the plane who'd been on like 25 different bombing missions. He did not get a silver star, but yet uh, LBJ got one. So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, fuck them, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, and so, so, I, L- yeah. so getting these accolades, right, and being this great hero of this mission, he gets the taste for war and he just decides to stay and fight it out until, uh, until, you know, uh, fascism is defeated <laughs> in the East. Right. No, he takes the first plane out of there. He leaves <laughs> immediately, <laughs> immediately. Oh my God. That rocks so much. Basically he just checked off. He's like, got a medal, military service check. Don't need to be here anymore. Fuck it. <laughs> He puts it on his uh, lapel, and then uh, that's it. He's got his merit badge out of there. Uh, A reporter would say, you know, he got his silver star for a flight, not a fight. And it was just one flight, a single flight. And, you know, well, you know, Johnson is going to, of course, uh, embellish the story as he's known to do. There are people like Papio Daniel in Texas who are bringing this up a little bit <laughs> that the, this is a little bit of bullshit um but that's still i mean that's not going to have any impact on uh johnson's career or anything yeah but, but when he gets back you know so the fixers in texas basically tell him hey we need you to stay in the house right and johnson kind of like uh truman in a similar situation you know that we talked about uh when we were talking about harry truman he finds himself in this sort of like a uh, wilderness period right where he He's not really sure like what he wants to do or where he's going. Um, you know, life in the house. I mean, you could accrue power in the house, but it involves just it involves just being there a long time, right? Yeah, like gaining power in the house is um very slow. And then like a few things happen which uh, you know, cause LBJ to lose power in the house. So one is that you know, while LBJ is like occupied with, uh, you know, his little military trip, you know, somebody basically takes a spot, like goes around him 
as a fundraiser for uh you know texas oilmen for the d triple c um mm-hmm. so lbj doesn't even have uh that power anymore um the other thing is uh you know fdr being close to death and then dying um you know, being close to FDR was uh, a very, you know, big part of LBJ's power. So he doesn't have that anymore. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that, um, you know, LBJ had kind of, uh, you know, run his uh, old man game on, uh, you know, Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn. Uh, well, LBJ kind of, uh, you know, tries to pit uh cactus jack garner uh Mm -hmm. fdr and sam rayburn kind of against each other and rayburn gets wind of that and so kind of starts giving lbj the cold shoulder so combine all those things and you know around you know 1943 like you know lbj is kind of you know listless and doesn't really know what to do yeah, I mean, you know, aside from Jumbo saving his life, Johnson's taking a lot of L's these days, right? Yeah. And um, and one of the signs that we can see that he's sort of taking these L's is prior to the 41 election, right? He's doing things like refusing easy oil money and stuff like that, right? Because he's hyper-concentrated on this political career and, and concocting the right image for it. Yeah. Uh, but during this period his sort of wilderness days he decides fuck it time to cash in and becomes head of a radio station right yeah um so basically we had we had mentioned um this state senator um i think his name is uh alvin wirtz mm-hmm. and so um you know alvin wirtz was a former you know state senator then becomes sort of like a very, you know, like well-connected lawyer. So basically uh, there is this uh, radio station in Texas that um, somebody is trying to sell, but because of various, you know, rules from the FCC, there is a lot of, you know, red tape around Mm. it. And, uh, you know, the owners are having a hard time, you know, selling it. So one, one of the people that wants to, you know, buy this radio station um, actually hires uh, this guy, uh, Alvin Wirtz. And they have, uh, you know, a conversation, have dinner. It seems like, uh, you know, Wirtz is going to try and do his best to push it through, uh, you know, the FCC. Well, uh, that night, you know, (laughs) Wirtz allegedly uh, makes a little bit of a call to FCC and suddenly uh, this this deal is now (laughs) is now off the table for Mm. the original buyer. Um, Funny how that works out. Yeah, real weird. Right. And so because he has this connection to the FCC, which is very important. Right. Right. He's able to get licenses easy. He also has these connections to the Democratic Party, which, of course, runs all of Texas politics, as well as to certain important, you know, he's still talking to Brown and Root and stuff like that. So he still has these connections to the financial world. So it also becomes this thing of uh, if you might want a favor from Johnson at some point in the future, 
might choose to purchase some ads on this radio station. Yeah. Right? Maybe even pay above market rate. So, yeah, I mean, people are buying time on the radio station, uh, you know, for, <laughs> for, for a nice rate. Uh, LBJ is making a lot of money. Suddenly, all this, you know, FCC red tape that had held up, you know, the sale of this uh, radio station for years uh, is gone. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, LBJ, uh, the Johnsons buy it under Ladybird's name. So, you know, they can. Very cool. Yeah. Refuse all, you know, connections to LBJ's, uh, uh, you know, political career, you know, no corruption. Meanwhile, like, you know, LBJ is making calls to the FCC, getting rid of, you know, red tape uh, quickly, you know, moving the radio station to a better frequency, uh, increasing the power and range so more counties could hear it. Um allowing it to like operate in the evenings. Like previously it was only like eight to five, like all this red tape disappears and they just start making a shitload of money. Hell yeah. And this is, you know, for all the guys out there, I mean, there's some good advice here. If you're going to do something that's like quasi illegal, uh, just put it in your wife's name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he used Uh, to tell, the press used to ask him about this radio station. And I mean, you could tell he still had some, you know, he he wasn't fully letting go of his political dreams, right? And he would always deflect and say, "I don't have anything to do with that radio station. That's uh, that's a that's a ladybird operation going on over there." Uh, yeah, I don't think anybody bought that too much, but uh, that was yeah. at least the story he was selling. Um, you know, and Ladybird did do a lot of uh, you know, like operational work at the radio station. Like, you know, he definitely put her to work. But then mm-hmm. he was oh, yeah. also, yeah. <laughs> she was definitely working at the radio. <laughs> I think that part yeah. is much as extremely clear that he was work. She was going to work at the radio station. Just uh, you know, whether or not she was going to be able to control the radio station or have uh, you know, uh, reap the profit from it. That's where the question comes from. Yeah. Um, so he was making. A lot of the financial uh, mm-hmm. decisions, um, definitely. And this radio station would eventually become a radio network. And even later, I think, uh, a TV network. Um, and the interesting connection here is that, um, you know, our friends at the famous Sinclair Broadcasting uh, now own this network. So how about yeah. that? <laughs> and, you know... For those that have not kept up with uh, the business of radio, uh, you know, maybe you there would be some room for conspiracy theories here, except for the fact that Sinclair Broadcasting owns like every radio station. <laughs> so inevitably, they're going to own this one too. But yeah, you know, um, it's a horrifying business that is run by like two companies. Uh, very cool. Extremely cool. Um, but yeah, so Johnson is making money off this radio station, right? And... Uh, but he stays, he's, he's still in the House of Representatives, right? Yeah. And so what what's he doing as a House rep at this time? I mean, pretty much like nothing. I mean, like uh, his constituent services, which was like kind of where like, uh, you know, he was popular, like that made him popular in his district. He kind of starts slacking on that, uh, runs, you know, less tight of a ship. Um, he's not really passing any legislation. 
or literally like literally years go by in between like him even like reading speeches into the congressional record like let alone actually like giving a speech um at the house um while at first you know he was kind of uh you know advancing in various committees as a friend of you know like sam rayburn well at a certain point i believe it's um 1946 yeah that the republicans take the house right and so lbj kind of goes from being uh you know the third ranked um on the naval committee to you know uh being near the bottom of this new uh armed services committee uh that forms after you know the gop take the house so like even even this slow game of just like waiting your turn um for seniority like he's losing at that it's it's kind of interesting because too johnson obviously posts his presidency and stuff his reputation is always as the sort of you know strong man of congress right who is the you know always the like quiet muscle behind legislation a guy who can get things passed and stuff Mm -hmm. and so i mean this really is against the archetype right that you're giving him johnson i mean of this guy who really is, in a lot of ways, just floundering. I mean, he even has to, like, humble himself after, like, you know, he makes fun of uh, some congressional aide named Harlow. And then he's he's forced by uh, a couple a couple congressmen, uh, Bill Hess and uh, Vincent, to just, like, you know, <laughs> apologize to this... Uh, uh, low-level staffer, and it's just like uh, Must you know, stuff like Johnson that kills him inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little part of the man died inside. Um, yeah, and so basically, his career really is in a you know at least you know vis-a-vis his ambitions is in a downward trajectory at this point. But then comes along in 1948, a Senate election. And yeah, Johnson decides he's going to take one last swing. And I think that's where we'll leave it off because surprise of all surprises, we've run a little long. But we'll come back for part two and we will talk about Johnson's 48 Senate election and the mystery of ballot box 13 and uh, the strange voter list that was found inside and get into some uh, real hilarious tales of uh, Texas electioneering. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, believe it or not, uh, Texas folk hero, Coke Stevenson, alleged Texas folk hero, uh, beloved uh, institution in the state of Texas, Coke Stevenson, that nobody really remembers or ever thinks about. Um, although I will say there was a middle school that was uh, in my district growing up that was Coke Stevenson Middle School, which is the only way that uh, name has any familiarity to me. <laughs> but uh, uh, not me. I went to Stenson Middle School, which is named after a uh, female pilot who I believe also died in an Amelia Earhart-like stunt crash. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> oh Well, uh, got anything you want to plug, Justin? Oh, yeah. Um, since we're talking about, um, you know, LBJ, 
who would also vote uh, for the Taft-Hartley Act during this period, which, you know, it does, as we've talked about before, it did a lot of uh, damage to the labor movement that, uh, you know, we're, we're still feeling uh, right now. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, there is some legislation that just passed the House called uh, the PRO Act, uh, which stands for Protect the Right to Organize. Um, I would say, you know, if you're in a union, uh, see if your union could uh, support this. Um, if not, uh, you know, the DSA nationally is working with uh, labor. They're working with, uh, you know, eco-socialists, environmental people to pass this PRO Act, get it passed in the Senate, get it signed, uh, you know, increase union density in the United States, because I, that's pretty much the only way I could think of that the left could actually build power is just like a strong labor movement. So, uh, yeah, check that out. Um, Google, Google pro act, pass the pro act, uh, join whatever, you know, whatever organization is campaigning for it that appeals to you most. Yeah. We're definitely pro the pro act. Uh, I think maybe the, you know, I'm no expert on it, but, uh, I think maybe one of the most important pieces in it is it does allow gig workers to organize and sort of recognizes them as not as independent contract laborers, but recognizes them as having a common interest if they work for, you know, the same company and all this kind of stuff. Right. Which is important because we're all going to be gig workers in about, you know, five years. So um, allowing gig workers to unionize very important. Yeah, there's a bunch of like bots online that are like, oh, I'm a freelancer and this ABC test will, you know, make me lose my job and make less money. Like, that's just bullshit. It would just allow freelancers to unionize. It's like total propaganda. Uh, you know, listeners to this show, you're smart, so you won't fall for it. But, uh, you know, just be on the lookout for that. Mm -hmm. What this means is hide, you know, uh, uh, this goes back to what we've always said, which is hide your parents' ballots so that we don't get uh, <laughs> yes. more boomer-approved politicians in office that will vote against this, right? You know, we got yeah. Do an election fraud on the boomer, like fr yeah. from these podcasts. You should realize, like, it's all corrupt anyway. Like, our democracy mm -hmm. isn't good. So, yeah, election fraud is good, guys. <laughs> election fraud is good. All right. Well, uh, that covers you know the the early days of Johnson, and we'll see everybody again, and we'll talk ballot box thirteen. All right. Bye, everybody. See you soon. Hello, Lyndon. Well, hello, Lyndon. It's just great to have you there where you belong. Lyndon Johnson always wanted to be president, but he lost a Senate campaign to one of the light crust doughboys. And now... His mentor, FDR, is dead. His career in the house is floundering. He has a bum ticker, and he is staring at the wrong side of 40. For Johnson, there is only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing.
I'm sure one of those is fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> what did you have in your map? A fucking paper towel. Swell, Lyndon, we can tell. Lyndon, you're still glowing, you're still growing, you're still going strong. We hear the band playing and the folks saying that the people know that you've got so much more. So, wow, wow, fellas, look at that guy go now, fellas. The whole down world. 